0: Ekotai's comfort women activism tackles the complex histories of Japanese military sexual violence and the activism by women in Japan, uh, mostly since the issue uh, came to the public uh, uh, awareness in the 1990s. Tai's contribution to scholarship on the so-called comfort women issue begins with a helpful overview uh, of both the comfort women movement uh, and also the political uh, and the social context in which that movement arose and also continues today. Part two activist narratives includes four chapters. Uh, Chapters three to five look at different ways that activists in Japan, uh, and these are primarily Japanese women responding either directly or indirectly to survivors' testimony. Uh, It looks at the ways that these uh, women, uh, these activists have approached the comfort women issue. Uh, Tai tells the stories of two or three representative activists in each of these chapters, uh, and then demonstrates how they encapsulate a particular way of being activists in the perpetrator state. In other words, in Japan, the Kagaikoku. Uh, Chapter six uh, follows the same structural approach uh, of sort of blending uh, an overall history with uh, these, you know, uh, close-ups, these sort of ethnographic kind of views of individual activists, but ties together some of the threads from previous chapters in its analysis of uh, the particular version of transnational feminism that led to the Women's International War Crimes Tribunal in 2000. Uh, finally, the book's conclusion contrasts uh, this approach, transnational feminism, uh, with the thought of feminist scholar Owo uh, Sheaiko, and the conclusion uh introduces the idea of feminism against Japan's military sexual violence, uh, which is the title of the final chapter, chapter seven, Uh, because it breaks new ground in understanding, not just the question of military sexual violence, uh, Japan's and uh, uh, beyond, um, but also the histories of philosophical and activist feminisms, comfort women activism will be of interest to historians of East Asia, uh, gender, social movements, and more. So, uh, Doctor Tai, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, New Books podcast. So, I want to jump direct, just direct in, jump right into the book uh, and ask you, uh, starting with your introduction, uh, a couple of questions to get us started. Um, so, your first two chapters, right? This sort of part one of your book, lay out your your topic, uh, your approach and the history of the movement to find justice for the so-called comfort women. Um, So can you first tell us a little bit about comfort women um, and some of the related terms that are also in use uh, and about the comfort women movement?
1: Okay. Uh, thank you for inviting uh, me, uh, Nathan. And uh, the term comfort woman is a euphemism used for victims of Japan's military sexual slavery. Activists in Japan use quotation marks for the term Yanghu, comfort woman, to indicate it. During the Asia-Pacific War between 1931 and 45, the Japanese military inflicted sexual violence on tens and thousands of young women and girls of the empire, and its occupied territories, forcing many of them into sexual slavery at comfort stations. The first comfort stations were constructed in Shanghai in 32 to resolve the problem of sexual violence and rape committed by Japanese soldiers. After starting a whole-scale war against China in 37, the military established comfort stations officially. Comfort stations expanded into Southeast Asia and the Pacific after the start of Japan's war against the United States. The official operation of comfort stations allowed soldiers to think it would be all right to build makeshift rape centers when finding no such station and to rape women in the battlefield. That created the need to make more comfort stations. There was a vicious circle of the forms of sexual violence. I'd like to stress that The comfort women issue refers to all forms of sexual violence by the Japanese military, not just those that took place at comfort stations. This historical fact caught a national and international attention at the beginning of the 90s, when some former comfort women came forward and testified about their past. Kim hak soon a South Korean, was the first woman to come out. Kim and other victims from several countries sued the Japanese state demanding an apology and compensation. Citizens in Japan, mostly women, formed groups to support the women's rights, a uh, women's fight for justice. They held testimony rallies across Japan, inviting survivors and listening to their stories. The comfort women movement thus began with the act of listening to survivors as the most important political action. From the very start, activists in Japan worked with activists in South Korea, the Philippines and other countries. The movement in Japan has developed as part of the transnational movement. Its major goal is to make the Japanese government accept the history and take the state's responsibility.
0: Yeah, so thank you um, for uh laying that out and in particular for making the the uh the sort of distinction between formalized and non-formalized sexual violence but also explaining how they they fall together under this uh category of the sort of comfort women issue uh, that's really helpful i think uh because that i don't think that that's something that a lot of people are sort of aware of mm-hmm. um and and so yeah i know that was uh that's that's great so i'd like to uh go on to the next question. Um, can you tell us about the parameters of the particular piece of the story that you're most interested in, which is the activists in the the perpetrator's state? In other words, the, the subtitle of your book.
1: Okay. The subtitle is very important. With it, I wanted to point to a major aspect of the movement. During my fieldwork, I heard activists say, the perpetrator state, Kagaikoku, again and again. In working away the survivors and activists from victimized countries, they are keenly aware that their country, their state, committed the crime of sexual slavery, a crime against humanity. They have devoted their time, energy, and money to the movement because they are committed to taking responsibility as citizens of the Kagaikoku, the perpetrator state. The subtitle came from them.
0: So, yeah, that's really interesting that, it, you know, it's coming from the activists themselves. And again, I think that's a really interesting insight for readers of the book to sort of prepare, prepare people to uh, jump into it. Good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the the second part of your, uh, sorry, the second chapter, right, which is the second part of your introduction, provides a really detailed history, um, a historical overview of the Comfort Women movement. And it's very complicated, and I think readers should really uh, dig into it. But uh, what does the audience need to know to follow our conversation today uh, and to understand the movement and its significance, even if not all the historical details?
1: Okay, Uh, the 30-year history of the movement is complicated. The movement has evolved as a redress movement and also as a feminist movement. Activists have changed strategies according to the actions taken by the Japanese government. Three actions are important. The first one is a positive one for the activists, that is the Kono Statement, Immediately after the coming out of Kim Hak-sen, historians discovered documents that proved the Japanese military's involvement in the comfort women system, and a number of Japanese politicians apologized. In 1993, based on the government's own investigation, Chief Cabinet Secretary Kono Yohei made a statement in which the government admitted the military's involvement, expressed its sincere apologies and remorse, and promised not to repeat the same mistake by remembering the issue through the study of history. The Kono statement was acknowledged as Japan's official stance um, on the issue by other countries and by Japan itself, but the government has not taken proper legal measures to implement it. Meanwhile, historical revisionism has become influential in society, making it difficult for activists to push the government to take correct action. The government offered compromise solutions two times, providing payments to survivors. The activists opposed the Asian Women's Fund, created in ninety five because most money of the fund was raised privately. They opposed the 2015 agreement between South Korea and Japan for several reasons. It neglected victims of other countries and did not invite the Korean survivors to the negotiation table. The funds under this agreement came from the government, but the AVE administration made it clear that the payment was not state compensation. The agreement did not include any educational measures for teaching the history of the comfort Women. In fact, the government has been denying the history. The activists have been fighting the government's denial of the history and responsibility. The movement has also evolved as a feminist movement, paying close attention to sexual violence taking place in war zones and conflict areas in the world. In the past several years, activists have made extra efforts to connect the comfort women issue, to contemporary issues of sexual abuse in Japan, such as the adult video industry and the JK business, which targets female high school students for sexual exploitation. In this expansion of the scope, the movement has attracted young people. And this is where the movement stands right now. Yeah. So,
0: just to um, go back over a couple of what I thought were the really most important points. Uh, this the, for for the activists. Um, the difference between private uh, private versus state-funded uh, mm-hmm. compensation, right, is a really important one. Mm-hmm. Also, this question that comes up, uh, the Japanese word tojisha, right? Like, who, who is actually involved? Who are the, the actual parties to these agreements? Uh, do the victims have voices? Are they allowed to be part of the negotiations? Mm-hmm. Uh, the question of whether we're just talking about Japan and South Korea or whether we're talking more generally about... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Japanese military sexual violence. And then finally, and I thought this was the really interesting um, thing that I that will add uh, to the knowledge of even people who are quite familiar with the Comfort Women issue this, the way that it's transforming itself into a sort of larger uh, movement that deals with current issues of sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um so that, that is, uh, uh, um, it really answers my question. What, what do readers know, need to know uh, and listeners need to know uh, in order to follow along today? Um, so that prepares us to jump into part two, uh, which is activist narratives. Uh, and beginning in chapter three, um, you introduce a couple of activists in each of the following chapters. Um, and you place their stories in context You use them to illustrate different theoretical and also practical aspects of the Comfort Women movement um, and its search for justice and solidarity. Um, So each of these chapters is thematic. Uh, So you have Chapter 3, Historical Consciousness, Chapter 4, Listening to Survivors, Chapter 5, Discrimination Against Women, and finally, Chapter 6, Transnational Feminism. Um, And rather than sort of breaking them all apart, I think maybe we can do this holistically. Um, Can I ask you to talk a little bit about each of these major themes and one or two of the activists that you're spotlighting in each chapter so we can sort of see them all together as a story?
1: Okay. Well, I started out with the narratives. In order to make those complicated and diverse stories more understandable for the readers, I found theoretical arguments that would help organize the narratives. I begin each chapter by discussing scholarly arguments relevant to the major theme of the narratives of the chapter. I try to demonstrate how those narratives substantiate, advance, or challenge the theoretical arguments. I organized the narratives around four major themes, as you um, just said. The first theme is historical consciousness, or historical vision, Rekishi Ninshiki. The comfort woman issue has been discussed around the questions of how to understand the history of the Japanese empire and how to take responsibility for it. As it emerged, the issue was linked to other historical issues, such as forced labor and the rape of Nanjing. There have been discrepancies in understanding these historical facts between Japan and victimized countries, and Japan has been negating the history. Because of that, there have been political tensions in East Asia. In this chapter, I discuss the case of Omori Noriko, a lawyer who worked with Chinese survivors in their lawsuits. She has been persistent in seeking a legal resolution even after the 2015 Japan-South Korea Agreement because she believes in the power of law in shaping public memory. As she listened to survivors, she developed a particular kind of a historical vision She wants the expression, comfort women, to evoke in the minds of of people the images of soldiers making a long line in front of a room and of a woman confined inside, lying with her body injured by continuous rape. The historical vision Omori wants to spread calls for understanding the pain of victim women and a sense of responsibility for what Japanese soldiers did. In the next chapter, entitled Listening to Survivors, I discuss two kinds of responsibility. One is political responsibility, and the other, responsibility to listen and respond to survivors. Activists believe that citizens in Japan have the responsibility to make their government accept the state's responsibility and pay the state's compensation. But the idea of taking responsibility as Japanese has caused a problem. Some argue that they are not responsible for what the Japanese empire did because they were born after the war. There are also people who don't want to identify as Japanese. This group includes scholars who take the position of transcending nationalism and reject national identification. They understand the need to do something about Japan's past aggression, but they are not fully committed to taking responsibility. The idea of auto-sekinin, responsibility to respond, possibility for responding, presented by Takahashi Tetsuya, a scholar in philosophy, helped resolve this problem. He argues that the act of calling out to others and the act of responding to such a call make up the basis of human relationships and that human beings are expected to respond when spoken to by others. People should take this universal responsibility regardless of their identity positions. If you were born in post Japan, you are not guilty of the crimes committed by the Japanese empire. But you, as a human being, are expected to respond to Asian victims and pursue auto-sekinin Takahashi says. The activists I met tried to take auto-auto-sekinin otose- they responded to the survivors who wanted to tell their stories and they organized numerous testimony rallies. By now, most survivors have passed away, but activists still appreciate survivors' testimonies and get together with young Japanese to re-read and re-listen to the testimonies. Yan Chinja, a co-representative uh, co- of, of our nationwide activist network, stresses the importance of listening. She first approached the comfort Women issue as a, as a Korean woman living in Japan. But when she visited a victim in South Korea for an interview, she completely changed her perspective. The woman was living in a hillside ghetto. When getting inside her house, which was actually a small portion of a small hut on top of the hill, Yan noticed her body shaking and her arm deformed The woman was sent to a factory in Osaka at the age of 11 and two years later to a comfort station in China, where her body started shaking. Her arm was broken by a Japanese soldier when she resisted his advance. After the interview, the woman thanked Yang for listening to her story. Yang thought she had been arrogant to approach the issue as a lens through which to look into her own hardship in Japan. After this experience, Yang became involved in a lawsuit of a Korean survivor in Japan, Song Shinto. One of the first things Song said to her was, I hate Koreans. Yang was convinced that she could not approach Korean victims as another Korean woman. Working with Japanese activists who were trying to take responsibility as Japanese nationals, she wanted to find a responsible subject position for herself. She decided to tackle the issue as a person who had listened to survivors. With this identity position, she tried to fulfill the responsibility to respond to victims and pursue their recovery from their damage. So Yang came up with the same idea that Takahashi presented theoretically. In Chapter 5, I discussed how the movement has been carried out by numerous women critical of gender discrimination in Japan. Feminist scholars have pointed out that the system of patriarchy was the fundamental cause for the comfort women system. Many activists told me that they decided to take part in the movement because of their own experiences of gender discrimination. Yamagata Junko is one of them. Before she became involved in the movement, she was struggling to find the meaning of life as a woman. She was not content with what she had. A successful businessman as her husband, a healthy child, and a nice mother-in-law. She was told by her parents, friends, and society that she should be happy as a housewife. But she was not. She became a Christian in order to find an answer to the question of a woman's life. Then, in the Old Testament, she found many expressions of discrimination against women. She became ill and stayed in bed for a long time. She recovered when she found feminist theology. Soon after, a comfort woman lawsuit started in her city, Shimonoseki. She attended all the court proceedings between 92 and 98. She was deeply moved as she listened to the stories of survivors. She started participating in comfort woman events, and eventually, in 2011, at the age of 70, she held her own event screening a film about the resent Korean survivor, Son Shinto. After thinking through the gender discourse, Yamagata figured out on her own that the exploitation of comfort women was rooted in a patriarchy pervasive in the world and in an imperial system specific to Japan. Yamagata's story says right on how survivors transformed women in Japan. She developed a sense of agency as a woman by learning from survivors. I should add that a large number of Christian women have been active in the movement. In chapter six, I discussed the movement in Japan as part of transnational feminist activism. For women activists in Japan, transnational feminism is possible only when they see themselves as different from other Asian women, that is, as citizens of the perpetrator state. But some scholars have argued Transnational feminism means transcending national borders, asserting women's rights are human rights. The activists I met are critical of this universal position. They have succeeded in developing solidarity with other Asians because of their critical historical perspective. But they confronted the question of how to approach Japanese comfort women. Many Japanese women were taken to comfort stations, but only a few came forward and no Japanese victim sued the Japanese state. It is pointed out that the majority of Japanese victims uh, had been prostitutes before becoming comfort women, in contrast to many victims in other countries who had no prostitution experience, who were younger and who were deceived or forced to become comfort women. This general difference between Japanese and other victims produced the discourse of the virgin-prostitute divide. This idea was a source of conflicts among activists at the beginning, but they resolved it by the time they held, in 2000, the Women's International War Crimes Tribunal on Japan's military sexual slavery. In this People's Court, Japanese women were included as victims. Its final judgment says that, regardless of their previous experience, women were all forced into sexual slavery. Nakahara Michiko, a historian, played a leading role in the making of the tribunal, working with the late Matsui Yayori, a well-known activist. Nakahara stressed that the trial was significant because it did what was dismissed at the Tokyo International Tribunal of the 40s, that is, to to prosecute and punish those responsible for the military sexual slavery, including the emperor. When Nakahara encountered the comfort woman issue, she decided to tackle it as an activist. She knew that transnational feminism could be achieved only through activism. For her, it is not an ideal to seek for its own sake, as some feminist scholars have argued, but a practical method for resolving the issue. Like those scholars, she does not want to identify as Japanese, but unlike them, she thinks Japanese people cannot transcend national borders without resolving the effects of Japan's past aggression. She is aware of her privilege as a Japanese national. Nakahara started getting involved in the movement when she met Korean survivor Kim bok tong in '94. She told me, Meeting Kim in person was a shocking, spiritual, and transformative experience. She said that Kim taught her what she had never learned at the highest educational institutions, that is, how violently the world has been treating women. In the early days, many victims cried hard while talking about their painful experiences, but they soon started transforming themselves and some of them started activism themselves. Nakahara stressed, that activists, including herself, learned a lot from survivors. There was mutual transformation, and she sees it as central to the movement.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for uh, laying that all out there. Uh, I think you know, the. The description that you give uh of all of those chapters together is really helpful because you, know, you can see how there are you know, legal questions uh that's what you know omori is mostly dealing with in, in chapter three for example um uh, the idea of, of testimony, uh, of both listening and then responding to that testimony, this idea of oto that comes up in chapter four. Um, then, and I thought this was really an interesting thing when I was reading this idea of feminist theology as it was being sort of <laughs> an entryway for for, uh, for Yamagata in chapter five, um, and the way that the sexual violence in uh, the 30s and 40s is connected to a much longer history of patriarchy. So it becomes, you know, a a gender issue, an issue of patriarchy, as well as an issue of a much longer history. Um, So we have law, we have uh, testimony and and theology, we have patriarchy. And then uh, Mm -hmm. we sort of, in a sense, return to... To even though it's it's I guess technically an ex, extra legal um, you know, a, a proceeding, um, we return to the law again, uh, but also then to uh, you know the power of testimony um, and the, uh, the the sort of problems of patriarchy with the two thousand women's International War Crimes Tribunal, uh, which as you say is kind of this follow up on what was missed right in a way um, in the, the, the Tokyo War Trials. Um, In in the 40s. And so this sort of activist, uh, practical transnational feminism that comes together, I thought, you know, it's really interesting to see how it's picking up all of these elements that you're describing in the previous chapters. Um, and that brings us to your conclusion, um, which is part three of, of the book. Um, and in the conclusion, uh, you offer some thoughts about uh, this transnational feminism. That's the sort of subject of, of uh, chapter six. Um, you compare the philosophy and the analysis of uh, ogoshi, ogoshi Aiko with the practices of the comfort women movement. Um, and you characterize that overall um, as a whole as JMSV feminism, so feminism against Japan's military sexual violence, that's the JMSV. So what characterizes JMSV feminism? Um, Where does it overlap with or diverge from uh, Ogoshi Aiko's ideas about transnational feminism?
1: Um, I found a new form of feminism in activist narratives. I tried to analyze it first by following the theorization of Ogoshi Aiko, as you say, a feminist scholar in philosophy. She focused on Matsui Yayori and the Women's Tribunal. Ogoshi begins by criticizing the women's liberation movement of the 70s for not taking action for other Asian women. During that decade, Matsui traveled in Asia as a journalist and exposed structural discrimination against women in Asia under Japanese economic dem- domination. She cultivated a transnational perspective and launched the Asian, Women's, the Asian Women's Association in seventy-seven to take political action. This association was one of the first groups in Japan to tackle the comfort women issue. When she found out, that survivors wanted those responsible for the crime to be punished, Matsui decided to hold a people's tribunal as her response to the survivors. Ogoshi points out Matsui was aware of a structural difference between women in the first world and those in the third world. Thus, Matsui's feminism can be called critical transnational feminism. Feminism, I found in the movement, is a form of critical transnational feminism that is broader in scope and is more complicated in nature. The movement has evolved after the 2000 tribunal and the passing of Matsui a couple of years later. This new feminism overlaps with Ogoshi's version of feminism in demonstrating critical historical consciousness. But it is also characterized by transnational solidarity, Neutral transformation, intersectionality, and the centrality of survivors. Let me talk about the last two as I have discussed the other features. <clears throat> intersectionality, I mean not only various forms of discrimination, class, race and gender being intersected, but more importantly, this movement intersects with other kinds of activism. The strings of the movement rest on activists' diverse political interests. Most activists are simultaneously involved in various kinds of political issues. Discrimination against Koreans, the emperor system, remilitarization, and nuclear facilities, among others. Those who only deal with the comfort woman issue are exceptions. I also want to stress that the movement has been carried out by various kinds of women who have different backgrounds in social class, education, and experience. I met a woman who cooked meals for survivors during their visits to Japan. I heard of a woman who stood with a placard in front of the cafe she was running for 30 minutes every day in order to raise public awareness of the issue. The movement has persisted because of those women playing a minor role, but determined to bring justice to the victims. The most important message I want to convey with this book is activists in Japan have demonstrated how women of a former colonial empire can develop an ethical relationship with a victimized woman through listening to them sincerely. The activists remain conscious of the fact that their movement was initiated by the survivors who had decided to come out. The movement is their response to the survivors, no more and no less. And this is the conclusion of the book.
0: Yeah, so that brings us up to uh, sort of the present day and, and where the movement is now. Um, I'm curious, where do you think the comfort m- movement, uh, the comfort women movement is uh, headed from here? Um, and in particular, so what are, uh, from your interactions with the activists, uh, what, what do you think they are hoping for? Uh, what, do, what do you think they're attempting to do? And, and what do you think will happen?
1: Okay, in post-agreement Japan, I have seen some positive signs for the future of the movement. Those activists who have been fighting for 30 years are still firmly committed to resolving the issue. Many of them are now in their 70s and 80s, but they say, I continue to fight until I die. Monthly protests in Osaka, Hiroshima, Shinjuku, Kobe, and other cities are still performed. Young women have become involved in the issue because of their concern with sexual violence in today's Japan. A message at the recent Shinjuku protest was, the comfort woman issue is not about the past, but it is about today's Japan. The movement will persist as part of the transnational movement, which has been going strong. In South Korea, President Moon decided to resolve the issue from a perspective of human rights not from that of diplomatic relations, the perspective taken by the previous administration. Korean survivors filed a lawsuit in their country, and in January 2021, the Seoul Central District Court ordered the Japanese government to pay reparations to 12 survivors. The activists in Japan were rejuvenated by the judgment. Many memorials have been built in other countries, including South Korea, the United States, the Philippines, and Germany. The Japanese government has tried to intervene in the building of those memorials, but its influence is limited. The activists say the fact of Japan's military sexual slavery is common sense knowledge everywhere in the world, except in Japan. Finally, I must say the movement is firmly embedded in a rich history of progressive citizen activism within Japan. I am sure that the comfort women movement will persist as part of Japanese social activism.
0: Thank you. Uh, that's actually nice to be able to end on a hopeful note. Uh, <laughs> a dark history, uh, and I think that's that's actually one of the things that I took uh, away from uh, the book as well. Um, so I want to thank you for uh, taking the time uh, to talk to us on the podcast and to to really break down, you know, what's what's an incredibly complex issue uh, in in such a clear way, uh, both in the book and for our listeners on the podcast. Uh, so, I, you know, I hope at some point we'll uh, have a chance to uh, talk again here uh, when when your next uh, book comes out. But thank you again so much uh, for taking the time today.
1: Thank you, Nathan.